Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. The easiest thing to cut costs is to look at the prioritization of what you're doing. Because I guarantee you, you don't need to be doing all of it. So for me, it's just reprioritizing. And if we miss a quarter and budget cuts come in or whatever, whatever the criteria, we are reprioritizing time and energy to focus on where we think we can get the most value. And that changes pretty constantly. What's up? What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome back to the second hour of Marketing Island. Today, the next guest I have is Kyle Lacey. You might see him on Twitter. You might see him on LinkedIn, but you also might have seen his work at Lessonly, Jellyfish, and all the cool companies he's worked at. I'm excited to welcome Kyle Lacey to the stage, and we're going to chat about how to plan for Next year, FY24, I know that's a conversation happening all over the place. So welcome, Kyle. Welcome to the stage. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Good, good. Hour two, it's great. Um, how are you doing? That's doing a big great. question. Doing great. Um, Ready to talk about planning and budgeting and all the fun stuff that we deal with. <laughs> I want to go into first, just give a quick recap of who you are, what you your journey, and then we'll go into budgeting, planning, all that good stuff. So I've been in marketing since 2007. I started an agency out of college that did a lot of social media consulting. So how do you use Twitter, Facebook? Our first product was selling MySpace pages to churches, and we sold zero, zero of the MySpace pages. But that kind of led into a career in digital marketing. And uh, with that, I joined a company called Exact Target, which IPO'd and was bought by Salesforce. Spent some time at Salesforce, spent some time at a VC firm uh, called OpenView, which is based in Boston. And uh, since OpenView joined as a VP of marketing at Lessonly, built that for four and a half years, we were acquired by a company called Seismic, very different size. You know, Lessonly was 250 employees, Seismic was close to 2,000. Spent a year on the leadership team at Seismic and then joined Jellyfish. So Jellyfish is a engineering product productivity tool to you know baseline it. And 200 employees, Series C, led by Excel Insight. And that's where I've been since November of last year. Well, I just wanted to get Kyle to go over that to show that he's extremely qualified to talk about the topic today about budgeting and planning because he's ran some big marketing teams and he's done a lot of He's been in the marketing for a lot, a long time. But I wanted to start with the initial question: Is can you walk us through the initial steps you take to start planning a marketing budget for the next year? Yeah, the initial steps are always taking a baseline to the budget. I never walk into a budgeting situation where I think I'm going to get more money year over year. You start at a baseline. And you draft a baseline before you're ever asked by your finance team to produce one. So in terms of initial steps, what did you spend this year? 
let's say you're going to spend exactly the same next year. How would you build out your budget based off of what you learned this year? And then you do good, better, best. So I, I usually have three budgets that I have worked on with my leadership team. And this is, I did the same thing when Leslie was 2 million in ARR, the same type of process, no matter a $40 million budget at Seismic to a $4 million budget at Leslie, I use the same process. So it doesn't really matter the size, but just make sure that you are coming to the table with a baseline budget, because usually what happens is that somebody walks in, uh, a marketing leader goes to a CFO and says, this is what I need. And it's 50% more than what you gave me last year. And guess what happens? Daniel, you can tell me. What do you think happens when you do that? They're like, hell no. <laughs> They're like, uh, you are way off base. And then you set, you set it off on a negative foot, right? I mean, so make sure you have three, two, at the very least, have a baseline and a best budget. I like that. I love like having three different good, better, best. It's also good. I like doing that also when planning on like how, what numbers you're going to hit for each month and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, Hey, this is like the good, better. Yes. Yeah. And you align it and you align it to that number, right? You should, the budget should align to a pipeline forecast, a pipeline model too, or revenue model. Uh, I want to go into that little piece. What are the steps to take to forecast the budget you need based on what you did the previous year, based on what you need to scale for next year? How do you do, how do you forecast those needs? And then we can go into the channel mix and all that later. Yeah. Well, first you need a, uh, an actual finance model, financial model. What is the business expecting to do from a revenue perspective, especially if you're in venture backed high growth software? You usually have it before you walk into the next fiscal year. What is the business expecting to do? What's the pipeline model that you need to hit that? And then you work backwards off of that. And some guidelines that I take into account, you do a 70-30 split on budget. 70%, 70 to 80% of your budget should be used to hit that pipeline or net new revenue number. 20 to 30% can be used for brand plays. Um, and that's a whole, I could spend an hour just talking about that ratio, but I work backwards off of the financial model, take into historic conversion rates. You've got the pipeline model that have levers that you can pull to adjust whether ACV needs to go up or cost needs to go down, sales cycle goes up, like all the different variables that you need to set a, a budget, both a financial budget as well as a, a revenue budget. I've heard you talk about this a little bit before, but I want to give like the quick theory why it's 70% or 30% split on brand, because I think this is really important for brand team, for brand, because I think brand gets criticized a lot for pipeline. Yeah. Pipeline. So, well, but I, want it, to I think brand getting criticized is mostly on how we as marketers present the metrics of brand, not necessarily the fact that brand is the wrong move. When you try to convince somebody, a CFO, that an attribution model is proving that brand is a good spend, you're pretty much digging yourself a hole, frankly. So like it, to answer your question directly, like anything in life, it's pretty much 80-20 across the board. And if you, if you haven't done this before, go back and take all of your variable spend and all of your fixed spend, like headcount spend, 
divide it out with revenue generating and brand generating. And it's probably, this includes software. So from a headcount perspective, think of a designer that is spending 80% of their time on brand work and 20% of their time on revenue generating work like ads or design around an event. And it's probably going to come out to 80, 20 or 70, 30. But if you're conscious of it, it can help guide you. If that 70% helps you hit a revenue number or a pipeline number, then it's very rare that you're going to have the conversation that, hey, how are you measuring the brand impact? Because the revenue number is the most important. I think another point you made too, it also allows the brand team to be more creative because they're not forced into this pigeonhole. Yeah. They have to hit, I have to hit this target. They, they could start doing things that more freely and take risks with that because they know they have that 30% variable. Obviously, in the back of mind, they have to take a little bit of revenue, but at least they, they can not be totally dependent on just one number with that 30% budget. Yeah, there's a couple of questions that I'll speak to real fast in, in the Q&A. When you talked about the 70-30 split, 30% of brand plays, do you have pay testing or campaign testing included in that 30%? I do not. It's in the 70%. And then have you been successful in demonstrating ROI on brand spend and brand impact? I would say that successful, yes, in terms of getting a brand helping receive a very large multiple on an acquisition. Now, day-to-day in terms of how are you measuring brand impact? It's much harder. Like I, I've tried with brand scores, taking in like customer MPS, taking in event MPS, taking in or branded organic traffic, the growth, and trying to model it to say here's our brand score. But most high growth businesses, you're not in the world of having to measure all this stuff exactly unless you're spending an ungodly amount of money on PR. But I also recognize that it's not that easy. So to answer your anonymous, to answer your question directly, I have not, except that everything that I've done has worked out in the end because we did a lot of creative things. But that's that's mostly my philosophy as a marketing leader. I also want to go into the question of, because I think a lot of marketers have made this mistake, and I've seen it being in marketing ops of heavily relying on all historical data to make decisions for their budget on next next year, and they don't take account that maybe like they've saturated audience in some channels. They've they've done certain things. So, how much do you rely on historical data versus like intuition versus like? predictions for next year so my uh, head of revenue marketing at jellyfish becky martins who was at zora joined jellyfish in may is brilliant at this she builds a forecast model for the quarter based off of the last three quarters and that's where we snap the line at the beginning of the quarter we review that monthly as a leadership team and we adjust based off of what we're seeing in the market A great example is this quarter, we did not model for a drop, a massive drop in July because everybody was gone, you know, holiday, summer, whatever. 
In August, we changed that model to support the drop in July, both from a spend perspective as well as what we need to generate from a pipeline perspective. I do model it historically, but we adjust monthly. So it's so it, you know part of this idea of continuous rapid improvement. Just because you set something in the beginning of the quarter doesn't mean you need to keep it. You can adjust it, especially fixed spend is harder. But your variable spend, you should be able to adjust if you've set the pr- criteria correctly with the CFO. Also, like the three month rule that you have to the next quarter, because I think some people go way too far back and it's just unrealistic. Um, so I think the three month and average it, average it. Yeah. Do not take what your conversion rate was the last month to what it's going to be the next month. Make sure you average it out. As an example, you know, if you're if you're looking at a um, demand funnel. I know you kind of talked about this, but we'll go, I want to go into more detail about how do you approach allocating new budget to, let's say, well-established tried and true channels to channels that you want to test with the new gear. I haven't found a perfect way to do this other than uh, making sure that you are being very, very, very focused on, on what's happening with the tried and true channels. I think you mentioned a little bit earlier what happens when you hit a ceiling. If a channel's not converting based off of the criteria that you agreed on as a team, that money should be funneled into a experimentation on something new, not kept there because you you're afraid of moving it i mean you could also do the you know the 80 20 rule at, at lessonly we did sprints where we had budgeted a certain amount of money i think it was probably 20 grand a quarter that was held to do two week sprints to test different ideas so you could also do that i would put that in the 70 percent of the budget you know, at Jellyfish, we do it a little bit differently, but lessonly, we have the sprints to help us test test new ideas. So going into working backwards from like, how do you work backwards from, okay, here's the revenue goal the CEO sets for the, the year. Now we're going to like make marketing goals for the year. And now we've made marketing goals. How do you decide, okay, these are the initiatives we're going to do. And this is like how much budget I'm going to allocate to initiatives that we're going to do for so, the next quarter or something like that. It's all based off of demand conversion. And then how how can how do we believe we can adjust it? And so when I'm talking about a pipeline model, especially for a sales-led organization, that's pretty much all I've been in, you're taking into account the AE, the account executive and the business development route, the BDR and SDRs, what they are sourcing as well as part of your model. Because marketing might not be, marketing might only be producing 30% of total pipeline. At Lessonly, we were producing a lot more, which changed our model. But for me, it's what is converting of those things that are not converting, why are they converting? And what can we do to set up the next stage of demand whether that's investing in a podcast or investing in billboard spend or more direct mail or more or a different ad campaign, you know, go to Quora ads and Reddit instead of Facebook, as an example. 
So it's very much conversion-based. And then we test it. And if the test didn't work, we move back to the next point and say, all right, what else do we want to do? And try to make that a process that's meaningful. But that is, that is easier said than done. That's probably the more difficult part of all this. Because a lot of it, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know why I keep throwing out so many percentages, but I would say a third of what we do is just putting our finger in the air and being like, I think this makes sense. That's why this job's so fun, in my opinion, is that you can do that as, as long as you plan the right way. You can't put 50% of your budget into a harebrained idea and it fail. That's not a smart way to be innovative. It's mostly just putting your eggs in one basket, which you shouldn't do, but you should be very particular about what basket you're putting them in. I'm going to go back to the percentages. So you said 70-30 split, and that's 70%. What does that split look like usually? Like how do you how do you split up? How do you go into that 70% split? Um, out of that, so let's just say out of that set, we're going to put that out up to a hundred. So the set, the hundred percent of the 70%, mm-hmm. uh, I'd say 40 is probably paid ads and that's a ton of different things. It could be G2, it could be Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, mostly Google, honestly, 20% is content organic, mostly for organic search. And then the other I'd say 20% is testing and then 20% is headcount. Headcount is probably a little bit more. Like I, I factor in headcount to this spin. Which is a smart thing to do. Um, which is, not a lot of people do, which you should. And like you said before, you have certain headcount that is in revenue generating activities and certain headcount that is only brand building activities and you split the budget between those type of things um yeah which is pretty a smart way to do it um and then obviously there's like in that headcount is probably like tools and stuff like that which is um part of our budget as well which seems to be a huge budget from from 10 years from even like 15 years ago that you know work just keeps yeah <laughs> yeah um and then on the like the 30 percent side the brand building how would you Put that up. Uh, direct mail, swag, events. That's what goes in that bucket. And then headcount costs and tool costs. But I would say that the two biggest percentages are events and, and swag slash direct mail. But I'm also pretty particular about swag in general. Um, no, listen, let, let, let's, let's see your, your take on swag because I think a lot of companies do it terribly. Um, so let's see your take. My take? I'm bl- like what are you? Why are you so big on swag? And like what what is what would you define as swag? And what do you do with that? Swag is interesting because it it's a touch point with somebody that's physical. There is so much room to grow with what people are sending. You get t-shirts and hats and socks and probably a yeti and probably some stickers. Your ability to personalize the swag with on-demand printing and using tools like Postal, as an example, as a marketer is huge now. So for me, I find it really interesting. If you have a great designer, design your own clothing line. I've done it. I've done it twice now. If we do it at Jellyfish, it will be the third time I've designed a third-party Shopify site that's a clothing line 
that's connected to our product because it's just interesting. It's fun. If you have a good designer and it's trendy looking, great. People are going to want to wear it. I think it's a touch point that most people do, but most people don't get right. Me receiving a direct mail that is personalized or cool and not something with a logo on it is so much more impactful than the t-shirt with the logo on it. I don't mind those. And as a CMO, my team makes fun of me because the amount of stuff I get, I just get a lot of crap. So creative marketing, send them something that has to do with a hobby that they have instead of your t-shirt because they'll probably give it to Goodwill. I also think people think it's just like, let's just create swag, but they don't understand that whatever you're sending out is how you you want a, your brand to be perceived. So if you're sending in low quality, uncreative shirts, that's coming off that your brand is low quality yeah. and uncreative. Yeah. If you're coming up with yes. high quality, high creative shirts, they can see your brand is very creative, out there, different brand. Yes. So I think that's the mistake that people make a lot. Most people are phoning swag in, and that is the wrong thing to phone it in on because it can be really bad. And it shouldn't be because uh, it's easy. I want to also go into a topic that I know it's hard for some marketers, but I get a lot of jokes and mediums that are like one budget and blah, blah, blah. But like, I think there's a correct way to ask for budget and get what you want or get close to what you want. So how do you approach or prepare your conversations with leadership or how a better question, honestly, two part question. One is you doing it. And then one, how should your managers approach you if they want to budget for their campaigns for the next year? And what, how, what, what are the conversations like that you would approve versus not approve? For me, when I'm getting a budget approved, I start with how is this going to create pipeline of revenue first? And that's how I model it. And there's ways that you can do that. There's, there's tons of different templates you can use or ways you can do it. But for me, it's what are we going to do next year that's going to generate the pipeline that we need to hit our revenue goal? Great. Everything else that we do, very creative. They love it. Gets good feedback. Customers love it. Great. You can connect that to expansion revenue. You can connect, connect it to net new. When my team is asking for something, I have a one-page business case well, it's one slide, so it's not even like a page Would that they have to fill out in order to ask for a certain amount of spend. If it's under $1,000, I'm usually, I usually do not care as long as it's not, you know, something crazy. If they at least have thought about it and we have, we have criteria around that. But if it's a, if it's a piece of software, if they want to spend 15 grand on a swag item for customers, like there needs to be a business case made are the reason why they want to spend it before we will make that decision. When creating the business case, is it, what should they be thinking about aligning it to? Like, how should they align it? Should they align it to the marketing goals, the company goals? What goals should they align that? Mar- mar- marketing goals, because the marketing goals are aligned with the company goals. And it could also be cost savings that they could align to. So demand generation, cost savings, or 
uh, a sprint idea, but I think it's pretty much those two. Is it going to generate demand in some form or fashion, whether that's opportunity creation, average contract value going up, uh, maybe they're pitching a software to help us get multiple champions on a deal, then we have certain stats, and then they say good, better, best. If this fails miserably, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if they knock it out of the park? And then we just make that decision on, you know, cost savings is easier, of course, but, you know, demand, they've got to give what they think is going to happen. Like, don't just come to me with, it's going to generate 10,000 leads. One thing that you said about good, good, that got me thinking about something else is it also is a good way to test, see, like, is this a big swing idea that this person's going for? Like, could it like epically fail or like is the ROI like 10x? Or is it an idea that it's like in its like small range where it's like it's not gonna epically fail, but it's might like increase like leads by 10 to 20 percent? What like and then you can I like that good bet about to see like level of risk and swing with this person's taking as well. And the best part about it is that it makes the team think through why they want something. Marketing in particular, and I've been guilty of this, has a great idea, wants to move quickly on it, wants to buy something because they heard something at a conference and somebody else told them it's a great tool to use. And so they want to go buy it and implement it. They don't think about the good, better, best template. So this at least lets people slow down for a second to think through like, why do I actually want this thing? Or why do I want to spend money on that thing? I think it also stops the problem of shiny objects and gym of like, hey, this yeah. person wants, we want to test TikTok. Okay. You want to yeah. test TikTok because someone told you to do, or you want to test TikTok because like you think it's actually going to drive business value or not. And like have that thought experience because you see that all the time. It's like, I saw a marketer on LinkedIn post about this. We should try it. And it's like, okay, yeah, like, but try, trying it's fine. Yeah. It's your idea of a good case to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I am usually pretty supportive if somebody has thought through the idea. There are very few things that are epic failures. If you think about the concept of testing in the right way. One one also question I have too is I think how do you pro- approach conversations with different types of people to like what metrics do you put it in front of the same CEO versus what metrics should they put in front of you versus what metrics should they put in front of like your direct reports? Because I think that could change conversations like hey I'm gonna like the CEO obviously will only care about like revenue pipeline and maybe like how how much like cost savings or CAC or stuff like that. But then you go like down to like campaign levels where markers can be a difference. What what are the metrics that you are in these business cases that marketers should be thinking about to put to put on? They're the same metrics that I'm showing the CEO. It's just a different part of the funnel. Really most of what we talk about outside of bets like Lego sets or cool events we want to do directly relate to pipeline generation or revenue generation. And so, um, again, I still go back to that 70, 30, 80, 20 split where if you're reporting and you're hitting a pipeline of revenue number, the board of directors does not care 
about the Lego set that you're using for direct level. They don't care because you're hitting a revenue number. Now, when you when you dramatically miss a pipeline or revenue number, do you think they care that you're spending 20 grand on a Lego set? Yes, <laughs> they do. <laughs> but you got to balance that. And that's the whole point. That's marketing, in my opinion, is how do you balance that? I want to also go into what happened since like 2023 with a lot of marketers that they got budget cuts and stuff like that. How, how do you think about that as a leader? How do you think about dealing with budget cuts? What, what, what's your mentality when it goes to that? What do you think about cutting on the marketing side versus how do you think about that? I base it again, going back to pipeline and revenue and conversion, right? Like it's never an easy process to go through a budget cuts. I've been very lucky that I haven't had to do huge amounts of that in my career. But I think that it's just a matter of making sure you're prioritizing the best converting avenues. And usually what happens at a certain growth rate is that there's a lot of multiple projects that are brought on a marketing team's list because they be, they've become more order takers. And so when a marketing team becomes order takers, the only investment criteria that they're all thinking about is that they don't have enough bandwidth. So when you don't have enough bandwidth, you ask for headcount or you ask for contractors. But the easiest thing to cut cost is to look at the prioritization of what you're doing. Because I guarantee you, you don't need to be doing all of it. So for me, it's just reprioritizing. And if we miss a quarter and budget cuts come in or whatever, whatever the criteria, we are reprioritizing time and energy to focus on where we think we can get the most value. And that changes pretty constantly. I think that is the big problem a lot of marketers face is that reprioritizing, focusing on what matters. I think a lot of people, we, I think a lot of marketers got stuck in the last few years of having great budgets and stuff that they didn't have to have the discipline of marketers that started maybe 10, 15 years ago when you had to like focus yeah. on, okay, here are like the few channel, like let's go to the fundamentals of marketing. And then the other thing, like the way you think about the 70, 30, I think is the best way to think about it where you're thinking of like, hey, Let's hit the number first with that 70% budget. And then we can use this other thing to make sure that like for, for swings, like events and direct mail or whatever big swings we want to take. Yeah. Uh, what are some predictions or swings that you see in FY24? What are the things that you think are going to be the same as this year before works? Is like, what are some things that you see changing in the landscape of marketing uh, for next year. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up AI. I don't have a strong opinion on AI as much as I know that it's going to, you know, it's adjusting how we do business anyway, you know, whether that's writing content or it's evaluating data sets, AI is going to be a constant from now on. So, so that trend will continue. I think that the the hiring of anywhere, anybody anywhere in the world is never going to change from now on. I think that there's a lot of talk about going back to the office and that's fine. And I think that people can do that, but 
the hybrid approach will be constant from now on. And I do think that, I mean, at least from my perspective as a leader who's been through going in the office every day and then COVID and now hybrid, being a remote worker, I definitely feel the pain of having a team that's remote compared to what I did when I had a when I had a team of 15 in an office together. And the different generations as well work differently. And uh it's definitely something that I've that I am learning. But that's more on the leadership side in terms of a trend is that I think there's going to be a lot of work. And I'm preaching choir here, but I think there's going to be a lot of work that leaders have to do to understand Gen Z, to understand remote culture, and to understand career pathing just in a different world. And so AI, career pathing, the remote hybrid environment. But I also think that, you know, events are coming back too. Like surprisingly, I didn't think that they would be back as hard as, hard as they are, but they are. So I don't know if that's a cool trend to talk about. Like I'm not talking about robots walking around or anything, but <laughs> it seems like comparatively to the last two years, Events are picking up quite regularly, and we're spe- I mean, I'm spending more money on events than I did in the past. It's it's actually a good point to bring up because I think, for example, HubSpot had their biggest attendance yeah. at inbound this year, their highest revenue generating inbound um, ever. So you see it in these events. I mean, micro events too that people are becoming really successful with CEOs, but also a lot of people, like you said, in a remote world, like. There's these people who are craving connections with other marketers, connection with people, connection with yeah, and that's what events bring. Where events three years ago were kind of different. The that factor was not like the one of the biggest factors. Like we already yeah. hang out with people in our office. Like we yeah. don't need like human yeah. connection. It's funny. I was talking about this to somebody recently. Something that I've said for years has been the only thing that makes any of us relevant is the experience that the prospect or customer is having with our brand. That's make marketers relevant. We are not relevant if the experience is is less than, than spectacular, in my opinion. That is even more true today than it was before COVID. Before COVID, when everybody was in the office, you had an event downtown, everybody was still in Manhattan and they wanted to come to the dinner. But now that people are working remote and they don't go in the city, just Manhattan as an example, Chicago, any major metro where you have customers, they are less likely to come to something that's just a dinner or a happy hour. You have to think about the experience and you have to make it worth their time and energy to come into the city because they they might not be there. More than likely, they're not there. They're at home still. Even direct mail. Direct mail is easier now because we had to figure out how to do this through COVID. That's why the experience has to be 10 times better than it was two years ago. So experience is the only thing that makes marketers relevant. That's it. And so you've got to think about that as you're investing time and energy to make sure you're doing things that are meaningful that people will remember because that's what makes this stuff fun, in my opinion. I love that. I also think that experience doesn't only start with the planning of the event. I think experience is the brand building activities. Cause I, I think if you're building audience and you're building raving fans of your brand, the more attention you bring build with your audience, the more that they're yeah. going to want to show up with 
to your brand. So that's yeah. just like a clear thing. Because if you don't have brand, then you're going to have to go all out on the experience because they don't care about your brand. One of my favorite brands out there right now in software is Lavender. Lavender is an email client. I'm going to butcher what they do. You can go check them out. They have a video out there about their event strategy for Saster. That is exactly what I'm talking about, is focusing primarily on their use case, their persona, who's SDRs and BDRs and AEs, but most you know, younger, tend to skew younger, and how they thought about the event experience where I'm probably not likely to go to that 9 p.m. dance party that they had at Saster. I'm probably, it's probably highly unlikely that I show up to that event. But guess what? If my BDR team, if all of them go to the event and all of them want to use Lavender, you think I'm going to approve the expense? Yeah, because it's just, it, there's just tons of different ways to think about this now. And this has been a, this is just a tried and true story for marketers ever since Benioff hired a bunch of actors to pick at Siebel's user conference. I mean, that's the best part about marketing is that you can do things like that and they work. So I got on a tangent there, but that's, you know, that's, that's, oh, I love it. I think it's a great example and a great job. I think it's a great example. And also it's, cause you can go to conference every year, every year and people are going to do the same, same exact thing. Okay. We're going to do a sponsored dinner. Or we're going to do yeah. like a booth or we're going to do a spin the wheel to get free swag. And like you go to now the level of creativity just needs to step up a little. And, and if it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, and don't hate yeah. yourself if you have a spin the wheel. Yeah, you know, I, I would just, but, but, yeah. but that's the point. I mean, it's like I, and if you do a dinner, we do dinners, but half the room is customers. It's not a, it's not a bunch of prospects. Like we want customers to get together just as much as we want prospects to get together. And it's not, and you program it differently. So there's just tons of different ways to think. But uh, you know, yeah, I mean, if you can also do it, like I, I remember last year they. Someone to the dinner that was like a unique experience of the dinner, or it's like the people attending. Sometimes, like a dinner, it's not only like where you do it, but hey, I have these 10 amazing people attending. Yeah. Like, we should attend this dinner. Absolutely. How do you typically find partners to source products for events and campaigns? We have two methods to do it. I have a company locally here in Indianapolis where I'm based called Screen Broidery that we use quite a bit just because I've worked with them for years. And then the other one's Postal, where I've been a customer of Postal and they have a marketplace where you can find people to do pretty much anything, honestly. I've been a customer from of Postal since they started, I think 2017, 2018. Those are the two places. One question I actually did have is, um, when do you start thinking about budget planning uh, for the next year? Like, what month of the year does it start? September. Right well, yeah, because usually, uh, usually you have. It depends on exact offsites. It depends on what board meetings are. But I, I, I've started. I started this week, so mid September. Does it start with you mapping out? You mapping like go meeting with the senior like the sex first, and then. You mapping out something and then getting with your team, right? What is like the stages? No, it's me. It's me first. I'll, I'll map out what I what I think that baseline and best case scenarios are. 
I'll confirm it with my leadership team and then we'll do it as a as an executive team at our offsite, which is usually our CFO and CEO. But I usually take, I'll by myself take the first stab at it. And yours is, I'm guessing, more high level, not like camp, deep in depth campaign level. And then you like, it doesn't, no, like I'll, I'll, I'll put a, I'll put a percentage of spend towards Google. And then my head of revenue marketing will break that down. But it's usually just the high level costs. Oh, cool, yeah. And then the next level breaks it down. The next level breaks it down, depending yeah. how many levels it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one thing we didn't talk about, like forecasting, is like, I know you, we talk about forecasting campaigning, but like, how do you think about forecasting headcount for the next year? Like, how do you think about like, I need this many ads for 2024? You know what? It is the hardest thing to do for marketing because there's so many different skill sets needed for a marketing team. So that's a very hard question to answer unless you have ratios. So BDR is really easy because you you know usually ratio it out. If for every AE, you have one BDR. For every two AEs, you have one BDR. Inbound, we have a um, quota level. So whenever an inbound rep hits a certain opportunity count, that's when we think about adding another headcount. So capacity, BDR, inbound, all capacity modeling. When it comes to design and product marketing, product marketing, sometimes it's a ratio between a product marketer and a program manager or a product manager. And then the rest of it is mostly time and energy and prioritization. And that's one-off conversations with people to make sure that why they need somebody or why we think we need somebody is actually valid. The one of the biggest messes I've seen are not usually in the marketing ad count. It's usually overhiring STRs or extremely yeah. under yeah, extremely underhiring STRs because you didn't plan for attrition or you didn't plan for people hitting budget or you didn't plan for- it's usually because people have not built a capacity model. They're just kind of saying, I hope this works, which is the wrong way to do it because it's it's a science. It's a tried and true science. There are plenty of people who've done it. There are plenty of templates out there to be able to model something based off of a quota, quota attainment. And that's where I just don't have a lot of patience for that, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so easy to model. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, the numbers up front. So it's, it's, yeah. it's just a math equation. It's very good. You don't if you. Unless like something extremely changes that like they raise like targets or lower targets, like that's the only thing that really. But but if you modeled it and your leadership team's actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, and the the forecast goes up, then the headcount should be changed accordingly before they move the forecast up. If they're doing it right, when it's irresponsible, it's when they just move the number and hope that it works. That's irresponsible because they did not think about capacity modeling and they didn't have an agreement up front. But I could spend an effort just talking. I love that. Also, RAM times is a huge thing that people yeah. pass on to. Yes. Like, like a lot of times it's like, yeah, we need you as new USCR, but they don't take account that the first month they probably are going to get one or two opportunities. Because they didn't model it. Yeah, exactly. they didn't model it. They because their SDR teams are saying, "I feel overwhelmed." Well, we probably need a new person. 
which is crazy, which is the wrong way to do it. A lot of people do do it that way. And it's just irresponsible because you need to model all of it so that you are at least adjusting based off of numbers. And the BDR, I mean, SDR and BDR thinks a whole different world, but I, yeah, I, I just was talking about it because I know you, you ran. No, no, I've ran BDR teams. I got it. Yeah, I get exactly. it. I just, yeah. I don't have a lot of patience for, unless they're creative ideas, like pick it an event, do a Lego set for a direct mail. I don't have a lot of patience for non-modeling on very demand oriented things because it's, yeah, it's so easy to do. You just can sales and CS are like the, one of the most scalable things because it's just like they do it in the same role. We're yeah. not marketing. We're not doing the same role. So. Now the, 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 the job is hard. All of it's hard, but you're making it more hard. You're making it more difficult because you don't have a model to back up on. That means that your CFO has no idea what you're doing. Your CEO has no idea what you're doing. Your, your CRO probably has no idea what you're doing. The CRO probably should have a model. And then it's all a mess and everybody's arguing because nobody's got agreement up front. And that's when budgets fail miserably because it's just nobody's communicating. Where could people find what you're doing and where could the people follow you and all that good stuff? Very much LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where I put where I do most of my sharing. And then Twitter I will, but Twitter's more less professional, more personal. Those are the two places. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you to everybody for coming and listening. Kyle, next is Ari Murray, my wife. We're going to talk about building our brands. But Kyle, you crushed it. I, I learned a lot today. I hope everybody learned a lot from Kyle today. Thank you for joining. Go follow him on LinkedIn. Go follow what he's doing at Jellyfish. And thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.